to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Thank you to our generous underwriters on Sharper Iron, the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. And Luther Classical College, a college for Lutherans by Lutherans, opening in fall 2025. Learn more at lutherclassical.org. On this Wednesday, February 15th, we are studying John chapter 8, verses 30 to 38. Some of those listening to Jesus believe in him, and Jesus tells them that they must abide in his word to be his disciples and know the truth that sets sinners free. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Brian Flammy. Pastor Flammy serves at Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Roswell, New Mexico. Pastor Flammy, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Hey, thanks. It's always fun to be here. Let's talk a little context as we get started today. Pastor Flammy, what should we know about this section of John chapter 8 as we prepare to look at these verses? Yeah, so as your listeners uh, who have been through the past episodes know, we are at the end or past the end of the Feast of Booths, which would have happened in late September, early October, sometime in that time frame. Uh, We also just saw the second Passover of Jesus' earthly ministry, which means that we are within the last, I don't know, six months or so of Jesus' life uh, before the crucifixion resurrection and ascension to the right hand of the Father. Uh, You'll also remember that the location is the temple. Uh, One of the uh, scholars that I really like to read on these things uh, suggests that this is the octave or about eight days after the end of the Feast of Booths. And during this octave, it was the custom of that time for the women's court to be lit up brilliantly with lights, right? Uh, Which gives some wonderful context to Jesus saying, I am the light of the world, indicating that he is the messianic light that was represented in these uh, in these celebrations, you know, uh, and so uh, it's also suggested by this particular scholar that uh, uh, sometime during his discourse with the Jews, he exited out of the treasury of the temple where uh, we, we had a place marker there earlier, and he had probably moved out into uh, one of the porches surrounding the Gentile court, and that helps us to understand uh, when at the end of this chapter, uh, Jesus hides himself from the rage of the Jews. Uh, who also find rocks on hand, unless they like carried him around in their pockets uh, to throw at him, right? So that seems to make some, a kind of logical sense to me. So I, I, I don't, uh, I wouldn't doubt that at all. That uh, Jesus has kind of a peripatetic way of teaching. Uh, hmm. when, he, when you and I preach, uh, we like to stand in the pulpit and not move an inch. You know, that's part of our office of pastor. And I, and I commend you for that. And I think that's right and good. And like I have a. A slight heart attack every time sometime a preacher steps out from behind the pulpit. Absolutely. But you have to understand, Jesus was not like that at all. Like <laughs> that, especially you have this, this wonderful uh, scene after the, uh, the Last Supper where Jesus teaches in John's gospel about love and the Holy Spirit. Uh, he leads his disciples. And as he's walking, he's talking to them and teaching them. Uh, that peripatetic mode of teaching was made popular, of course, by the followers of Aristotle and picked up certainly by certain uh, by uh, uh, certain teachers at that time. Christ himself obviously does it. So it doesn't surprise me if he would start in, let's say, the treasury of the temple and move out to another place in the temple, not in the least. Hmm. 
Okay, so Jesus is allowed to to move when he preaches, but you have like little outlines for your feet in the pulpit where you stand. <laughs> it is uh, no, I I don't okay. know. So so it's like one of those things where that's fine. I suppose if an extreme example demanded it, I I would I would walk around right. So like when I teach my kids, it's here at our classical school. What do I do? Uh, if I stand behind the lectern the whole time, the kids, even if I say, say everything in a very exciting and engaging way, they'll get sleepy. They'll put their heads down. They won't, they'll zone out. They'll stare off blankly at a wall, right? And so it's necessary to get up and to walk around them as I'm trying to make points. Why am I doing that? I'm changing the focus of their attention constantly to keep their attention. Uh, that's an old pedagogical de- device that certainly Christ and others <laughs> used, right? <laughs> Uh, so yes, standing still is appropriate for the divine service. Uh, but hey, when you teach Bible study, uh, you're probably going to get up and walk around too. That's yeah, that's right, that's right. Okay, so that that's kind of beside the point for our conversation today. With with you mentioned in the context, the Feast of Booze, Jesus speaking about you know he is the light of the world. He said at the beginning of this discourse or conversation, do, do you see the that theme? I am the light of the world carrying forward into what he continues to teach? Is there a relationship between him being the light of the world and what we're going to hear him talk today about the truth and his words? Absolutely. Uh, When you go through, uh, as I am going through 1 John right now for my Sunday morning Bible study, uh, uh, light has a connotation all of its own uh, from the Holy Scriptures. Light is, is not just, you know, photons that strike your eyes so that you can see what's in front of you. Uh, light is, in this context, spiritual illumination, the disclosure of divine heavenly truths, right? And that is what the physical lights that were uh, celebrated there in the temple and the court of the women symbolized. Uh, the spiritual light that was going to be brought by the Messiah, especially for the nations, especially for the Gentile world. Uh, I was reading that typically in these ancient buildings, uh, the the the, the the goal was to keep light in, and for that reason, like the, the encasements of the uh, of the of the windows, right? It would be wider on the inside and narrower on the outside. But apparently, according to the rabbis at the temple, it was the opposite. So the uh, it was narrow. The the casements of the windows were narrower and then on the inside and wider on the outside. Why? To allow as much light to escape as possible from even the places that have been segregated off for the Jews to worship you know, God, uh, apart from the desecration and, and sort of the pollution of the Gentiles. Yet, that was foreshadowing a, a spiritual illumination of the Gentiles that would come in the Messianic time. Uh, so I find that really, really fascinating. It also kind of uh, uh, gives understanding to the, the song of Simeon, right? A light to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. This is what the, the Messiah will do, give light. Uh, the spiritual illumination of heavenly truths, uh, the things that the people had been waiting for with great expectation. And we see that in Christ, of course, uh, that he tells the Jews that he is from the Father, right? Uh, And he gives various signs and preaches quite plainly, especially by this point, that he is the Christ that they had been waiting for. And that he wants to show that uh, what belongs to the kingdom of heaven isn't so much their works and their obedience, uh, but rather God's grace, which can only be received by faith, you know. And and this is uh, this is the light that He wants to give to His countrymen, especially at the beginning of the pericope that we're we're going to be talking about. Uh, but it's also the light that will extend from that place uh, to uh, you know Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. 
uh, that it is not by works or, or various struggles and toils of this earth that, that we make ourselves godly, but it's by the hearing uh, uh, of God's word and by faith in that word. All right, let's go ahead and turn to the text. Again, we are in John chapter 8 today, beginning at verse 30. As he, Jesus, was saying these things, many believed in him. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham, and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say, You will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. That's where we stop the text today. That's John 8, verses 30 through 38. Pastor Philemon, let's talk a little bit about the, the attitude of the people listening to Jesus at this point. In verse 30, we hear that many believed in him. As the conversation is going to go forward, though, it sounds like they're, I don't know, challenging Jesus or at least questioning Jesus. What do you make of the, the attitude, the, the approach to these people listening to Jesus? What do they think of him? Yeah, it's a mixed group. We know that from the preceding chapter. Uh, where Jesus's brothers are like, hey, you should go down to uh, Judea and do your works down there. And you get the impression from St. John uh, and from the words of Christ himself, like, you don't actually want me to do that. What you want me to do is to get out of here so I'd stop being a nuisance to our family or something like that, right? Uh, and when Jesus finally does come and reveal himself at the Feast of Booths, uh, it's, you, you have a mixed reaction. Some people say, this can't possibly be the Christ. Other people are saying, this is absolutely the prophet. And others say, no, it's the Christ, right? And so you have this great uh, question hanging over Jesus at this time where you can see that the people almost want to believe in him if they could bring themselves to the point of like trusting what he is saying. And so you can almost see the crowd latching on to some of the things that Jesus has been saying, that I am the light of the world. Right, uh, that if anybody who who is with me has the light of life, uh, that that he is speaking in a high and heavenly way. That as the, the guards who were sent to to arrest Jesus earlier go back to the Sanhedrin and report, like uh, nobody talks like this. Absolutely nobody. This is something totally different from from what we've heard before. And so I think that it's absolutely true that the, that uh, some of the Jews, even though if their hearts were especially hardened against Christ to the point where they wanted to kill him. Yet there were others there standing among them who desired to believe in him, who were beginning to believe in him, right? Uh, and and uh, it's interesting because the next words that come out of Jesus' mouth seem to tip the scales, not for himself, but against him, against himself, right? Uh, and, and so that, this is really the, 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 the interesting thing to me about this text. It's always been a bit of a mystery. Like you and I hear this text and we, and we hear only, I don't know, like blessing, uh, comforting things, comforting tidings. And, and uh, it gives us great joy for our eyes to pass over these particular words and to let them settle upon our hearts. It had the opposite effect, though, uh, for the Jews who were there, who were starting to get excited about Jesus potentially being the Messiah, the prophet, uh, and their savior, you know. Mm -hmm. 
Hmm. Back in John chapter 6, in the Bread of Life discourse, it seemed every time Jesus was met with a question or even some, you know, how can you be saying this, he kind of ups the ante every time. So this isn't out of I guess it's not out of character for Jesus Mm-mm. to see what we're do- what he's doing here. Although I, you know, I although it has that effect that they end up rejecting him and and by the end of this chapter, you know, they're going to be picking up stones to to stone him as you said. He's not doing it so that they will stone him. He is doing it so that they would be his disciples. But he's he's laying it all on the table, I guess. He's helping them to count the cost so that they can know what it really means to be his disciples. And I, I find it, and this I know takes us into the text we looked at yesterday, I find it striking that that this note about many people believing him comes right after he's talked about being lifted up. Mm. And and that's going to be how they'll know that that he is. That the, you know, what Jesus is preaching and the way that he wants people to believe in him is ultimately as the one who is crucified for them. And and I think, you know, we want to we should keep that in mind as we hear Jesus' words today how all of this is going to relate to what he says finally about his death and his resurrection for sinners. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you, I mean, you get this reaction too when you read uh, from John or when you uh, uh, teach from John in Bible class and you speak about his, and, and Jesus will speak about his glorification, his being lifted up. Uh, even for your uh, run-of-the-mill Lutherans today, their minds don't immediately go to the cross. They usually go to something like the ascension, typically in my experience. That's what I've seen which is very interesting to me because you need to say, well, the ascension is fantastic and wonderful, but never to be thought of as distinctly from the cross, where is the ultimate bearing of God's heart for us, right? Uh, where God wants to be worshiped in, his, in the glory of his weakness, that is in the weakness of the son who gave himself into death to set us free from our bondage to sin. Uh, and so, yeah, I think it's, there's something probably that, that's capturing their attention absolutely about hearing about the, uh, this glorification being lifted up, they're like, ah, oh, yes, finally the Messiah that we've been desiring, he's here. He's going to, to take us uh, you know, from our bondage underneath the Romans or whatever and, and give us a great and glorious empire. And, and so we'll rule the earth as princes and kings and judges. But Jesus doesn't take them there. Instead, he takes them to his word. Uh, he takes them to the reality of sin, which ultimately points us to the necessity of the cross. Uh, and and I, I, I love to point out to folks that many of the Pharisees uh, uh, who were against Jesus, and even Jesus' own brothers who were against him during his ministry, were in fact won over to the truth and to the Christian faith after the cross and after the resurrection. It was yeah. it was at, after the the great after the great uh, atonement was made and the Holy Spirit had been poured out. Then and only then do you have thousands of people on a single day in Jerusalem uh, being brought into the kingdom of heaven by water and the word, right? Mm-hmm. That's, that's Jesus's plan. That's what he desires. And so you're absolutely right. Jesus is preaching these things uh, not to drive people away, even though it's having its effect, right? Uh, but in fact, to, to teach them the reality of their sins so that they would know and their sin and desire a savior. The word of God is a great crucible, isn't it? I mean, it's, mm-hmm. uh, it really does... Uh, sort everything out. It's good to see that the people aren't so much themselves sorting out what's going on here, but the word of God is sifting and, and working and pushing one way and the other. And uh, you know, the, the, the great dialectic, so to speak, of law and gospel is totally at work here. Jesus knows that as long as they refuse to acknowledge the reality of their depravity 
uh, that of their enslavement to sin, then it won't matter how much grace and blessing he preaches to them. It will not be for their spiritual good. It will not be for their salvation. Uh, so, or throwing the, the pearls before swine, so to speak, right? Uh, and and as, as a pastor, you know this, and as other people like moms and dads and teachers who, who work with kids and have to uh, show them the godly way and teach them the Christian way, as they also know, uh, you can only speak forgiveness to a contrite heart, right? And this calls for discernment, pastoral care, and Christ being the great shepherd of the sheep knows this better than any of us. Uh, and so and, and, and to get to the point where he can bless them in the way that he wants to, uh, through the knowledge of his cross, his death, you know, his atoning blood, he does have to do this painful work, right? And for those who would rather believe in him as a glorious Messiah, as opposed to a suffering Messiah, he has to, he has to break that all apart because what they were beginning to believe in, if they had followed that through to a conclusion apart from the cross would have been a false Christ, a false faith. Mm -hmm. Tell us more about what Jesus says at the outset of our text for today. He says to those who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Help us to understand what Jesus yeah, is saying. Connected to what we just said, um, it's not enough to start with Jesus and to hear a few of the things that he says and say, yeah, I'm a Christian. That's it. That decides the matter. No. Uh, the word that he uses here, like in our ESV, that's what we're reading from, right? Uh, it's abide, yeah. you know? Uh, remain, live in, stay in. That's the idea here. That once you receive the word of Jesus, you, you don't dip in your toe and walk away and think that that's it. Instead, he wants you to get into the water and to sit in the water and never to leave the water again. You know? And so he's telling the those who are beginning to believe in him that it's not enough to hear a few things that please you, but you have to stay with me. You have to continue to be uh, taught, not just the, the things that tickle your ears and to give you immediate pleasure, but in fact, you have to bear with the word and be borne up by the word in times of difficulty and suffering, right? Uh, it, even, even when the suffering is brought about by the action of the word itself, when it lays bare the reality of who you have become in sin, you know? Uh, Luther makes a lot of hay out of this. You, you know me, I have like one modern commentary on John and I read that for <laughs> 10 minutes. And then I spent the next two hours reading like the relevant passages from Luther's sermons <laughs> in the village church, you know, filling in for Bugenhagen. And, uh, oh man, this is so fantastic. Luther is totally sick and he's weak and he's like, oh, I don't have enough strength to preach about this. And he tries and he, everything he says just blows everybody else out of the water, I'm convinced. Like I was looking at all the stuff that Chrysostom and Augustine were saying about this stuff too, and it doesn't even come close. Luther loves to point this out here. He says that uh, Jesus is making a distinction uh, that he makes often elsewhere, especially, most especially and readily apparent to your hearers would be the parable of the sower. Uh, mm. There are those who receive the word, right? And they, and, and they rejoice in it for a little while, but then comes cross, trial, and suffering. And they refuse to have the word and suffering. And so they abandon the word to escape the suffering. And, that, uh, and those would be like the people who are, uh, you know, uh, and those would be like the people who are described as, I know you're not supposed to talk about, you're a kind of soil, but I totally am right now. Those would be the kind of people who would be the shallow soil. There's, the, the root doesn't put down and it doesn't find much moisture there. So they wither and die in a time of testing. The same is also true of those who receive the word for a little while. Something grows there. Uh, 
But then the cares and the riches and the pleasures of this life choke off that life that had been given to them by God, right? And so Jesus is making a similar point here that yes, you have the word now. Yes, you are beginning to believe in me now. Now you must remain in what I'm going to say next, you know, and, and which is hard to hear because what is the next point he's going is, is, is to lay bare for them is something that's going to break up all of the Jewish preconceptions at the time, something that was unknown to the rabbis at that time uh, because they had ignored that clear and plain testimony of the scriptures, uh, which is what I assume we'll get into next year. Hmm. Yeah, let's let's talk a little bit about. So we've talked about the abiding in His Word, hmm. which I think is is really helpful, and we've seen that already a bit in John's Gospel, in chapter one, when Jesus was calling His first disciples. John made the note as he was recording it that they stayed with Him, they abided with Him. Yeah. It's that same word. That's right. And, you know, it's been setting the stage for what we're seeing here, and of, of course, you know, we're going to get this language again from Jesus, especially as he has this discourse on Monday, Thursday, particularly chapter fifteen. You know, abiding in the vine as a, a branch abides in a vine. So that language is going to continue. What about this matter of of then? kind of the progression that he describes, you abide in his word, you're his disciples, and then you know the truth and the truth will set you free. Talk about the truth and how it sets us free. Yeah, this is, uh, there's a fantastic parallel to this, of course, in in 1 John, in, in the epistle by by the apostle who penned the gospel. Uh, uh, there he talks about, I'm, not, I'm writing these things to you, not because you need to be told them, but because you know everything already. Which seems redundant. I mean, what's the point of writing again? And it, it, no, he wants to point them back to, and in First John, he calls it their anointing and what they had received from their anointing. And how were they anointed by the Holy One? Uh, not with uh, you know the earthly oils of this world, but with the with the true heavenly chrism of the Holy Spirit. Uh, with the Holy Spirit, of course, uh, bound together with the water, according to the promise of Christ. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. And everything that belongs to the name of God that was added to the water, you know, we don't, we don't add a mystical unknown word to the water. We name God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And when you speak of God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are speaking of the entirety of the story of the gospel in a nutshell. And every time you talk about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the three persons of the one true God, then you're engaging in the story of salvation. You're confessing the creed which is exactly what we make everybody who is baptized do. You know, uh, They're not to be baptized in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, apart from the creed, but always with it. And their whole life, their whole life of baptism from that point forward is living in the creed, living in the apostolic truths revealed that give us the substance of the creed. You know, And so this, uh, this abiding in the word is what it means to be a disciple. Like you hear all this hubbub about discipling and discipleship. I have no idea what the rest of the Christian world thinks about what it means to be a disciple. I think, maybe you can correct me on this. I think it has something to do with like being a good follower. You know what I mean? Like you know your place in the organization that is this church, uh, that you receive orders and you carry them out sort of a thing. Uh, Mm. That's not what it means to be a disciple. To be a disciple is to be one who hears and learns, you know? It's not about action. It's about receiving and growing according to the knowledge that's given to you by your teacher. You know, uh, so when we talk about discipling people, if you desire to, you know, use the word in that way, I hope that you mean uh, to teach them, uh, to to preach to them, to administer the the word of God and the sacraments to them, so that they would be filled with 
with faith that clings to the gifts of God uh, that the Holy Spirit has made known to us in the word. You know, that's so to, to be a disciple is in fact to abide in the word, to continue in the word, not to dip your toe in it and to step away from it, but to keep on it, uh, keep to, but to keep on with it. Uh, this is really, really an important topic for us to talk about, uh, for pastors to talk about, for people in, uh, the lay people in congregations to talk about, uh, because so often when folks go through a catechism class, uh, uh, you'll see them for a little while and then they'll go away, right? Uh, and I think that Jesus tells us that A, that's to be expected, that's, that happens, but B, we are to emphasize exactly what Jesus is saying all the more. You are to abide in the word. You are to stay in the word, remain in the word, uh, in home devotions, especially in coming to the divine service on Sunday and hearing the preaching and teaching regularly. It's not, it's not enough. The devil is too wily. Uh, it's not enough to hear the gospel once a year to think that that's good. I'm filled up with enough grace to get me by. Uh, we're not spiritual camels in that way. That's kind of a funny thought. Instead, what are we? We're spiritual infants. Jesus says, become like children, right? And the children need to be cared for, not just occasionally. Uh, you know, it's not like I get to say to my kids once a week, oh, okay, you're alive. Well, I put some food in a bin out back so, you know, you can feed yourselves for a few days. I'll check on you. Yeah. Uh, maybe in a week, two weeks, eh, you'll be fine. If I did that, what would happen? I'd rightly be dragged off to prison for, you know, neglect. Uh, instead, if we're going to care for our children, they have to remain in the house. <laughs> they have to be fed by their father, not just one day, but every day. Or, you know, mm. if not by father, then by mom. Mom does a lot better job of paying attention to the kids on a day-to-day -day basis. <laughs> Yeah. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they, they shall be satisfied. Or, or even as you were talking, I was thinking of the words of Peter from earlier in John 6, where, where after many do leave Jesus after the bread of life discourse, mm. you know, he, he turns to the 12 and he says, are, are you going to go too? And Peter says, no, where, where else are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. And it, it's that same attitude that, that Jesus would instill to those Jews in front of him here, that they would abide in his word here and to, to receive that truth that sets them free, that delivers them to eternal life. Hmm. We're going to keep looking at this text on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO. We're talking about John 8 with Pastor Brian Flamy. We will be right back. Please stick around. Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. What do you think of when you hear the word college? Expensive? Liberal? Woke? Imagine a college that is affordable. A college that is unapologetically conservative and Lutheran. A college that won't take a dime of federal funding. A college that teaches the best of our Western heritage. A college where students grow in the Christian faith instead of leaving it behind. This is Luther Classical College. A college by Lutherans and for Lutherans. Visit our website, lutherclassical.org. Subscribe, become a patron, and join the thousands who are making Luther Classical College a reality. 
Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Wednesday, February 15th. We are studying John chapter 8, verses 30 to 38 with Pastor Brian Flammy. He serves at Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Roswell, New Mexico. Pastor Flammy, prior to the break, we've been talking about Jesus' words there in verses 31 and 32. The words in verse 32, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. They're actually engraved on the main building at the University of Texas, the tower that sometimes you might see if you're watching a, a University of Texas athletic competition. They might show that on TV. That tower, when you enter into it, these words, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. That's engraved upon that building there, I think in the King James English. But it always struck me because they didn't talk about verse 31 when they engraved it on the university of a, of a public university building. So what truth is Jesus talking about that will set us free? Yeah, it begs the question, doesn't it? Uh, we could think of truth in a handful of ways. Uh, that's pretty apparent. I mean, you could talk about philosophical truth, uh, that is, you know, truth that, uh, that, that's in accordance with the, the great realities of this world and, and reality within us and outside of us, you know. Uh, you have like moral truth, those things that are good uh, as, 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 you know, true and right action and, and those things that are evil as corrupt and false, you know. Uh, but, you know, Chrysostom says this. He says, nor, uh, you shouldn't think of these other kinds of truth. Instead, he says, I am the truth. That's what Jesus says. I am the truth. Uh, the Jews had a typical dispensation. That is, they had a type of uh, uh, the salvation that was to come. But the reality you can only know from me, the true salvation, the true Savior. Uh, I, I think that Chrysostom is absolutely right about that, where truth isn't so much located in a logical proposition. Uh, truth isn't uh, seen in, let's say, a right action even. But truth is found in a person, uh, which is fascinating. And, and of course, this is what Jesus, uh, you know, this is, uh, 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 th th this comes out in Jesus' interaction with Pontius Pilate, uh, who, who uh, asks the question, what is truth? You know, and there he sees truth personified, uh, not just in a figurative sense, but quite literally. There would be no such thing, and this is the some something good to realize as well, there would be no such thing as moral truth right action or philosophical truth, true propositions, unless there was first standing behind both of those, those, tr those things that we call truth, the personal truth, who is the logos, the word of God, who creates all things, sustains all things, right? Uh, there couldn't be no reality to make reference to apart from him. There could be no action one way or the other uh, apart from the logos, you know? And so when, but of course, when Jesus is saying, you will know the truth, what truth is he speaking about? It's not philosophy. It's not morality. It's salvation. And the salvation that, that he is coming into the world to bear the sins of his people and all people, to make satisfaction for that sins through his death and to then give us God's grace, his saving grace uh, through the forgiveness of our sins. You know, that is the truth. Uh, the capital T truth that Jesus is laying bare to his own people that he's going to embody in his own in himself, especially as he's glorified personally, bodily, on the cross. You know? mm. uh, there's there's never been a truer thing in the whole of the world, in the whole of the history of reality, than Jesus Christ and Him crucified, which mm. is a, a fascinating thought. <laughs> yeah. Well, and Jesus says then that this truth will set them free, mm. and that's really where they it seems, are, are jumping from when they ask him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? They really key in on those words. What's their objection here? And and I guess the question that I have, because I know I've, I've 
talked about this in sermons before. Are they are they right that they were never enslaved to anyone? Because I mean, the book of Exodus talks about their ancestors at least having been enslaved. So what are they? Where are they coming from here? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I use I, I mean the typical way that I would preach it too is that uh, they're so consumed with sort of this sort of building anger against Jesus that they just asserted something that's straight up false. Well, that may not be that, and it may not be the right way to take this. I think that they really believe and have thought for a long time that they are in a very special sense free, right? Free from what? I, I, I mentioned to you in our notes that, well, perhaps they're free uh, from the, the, the slavery of idolatry that consumes the nations. And in that sense, yeah. I mean, they have the name of God. They have the word of, uh, uh, that, that was given to Moses and uh, through the prophets, you know. Uh, they they have something that that sets them apart from the rest of the world. Absolutely, uh, you could also say that they were uh, uh, free from ignorance of who God is because through that same sort of revelation. So not only were they free from sort of the crass idolatry of the nations, uh, but they were free from the ignorance of the nations when it came to where everything came from and where uh, pe- who people are right now and where they're all going. You know. Uh, it could be that they see themselves as free in this sense. And this is the sense that Luther points out in his own sermons on this. Uh, he said that uh, they remember the promises at this point that are spoken to Abraham, uh, that are repeated to the people of Israel again and again and again. And he makes reference, I think it was, to Deuteronomy chapter 22, where the Lord says, you will not be the tail, but the head of the world, mm. the rulers and mm. the princes. And so... Uh, even when they were enslaved in Egypt, they always knew themselves to be, according to the promises given to Abraham, princes, kings, and judges over all things, even Pharaoh and Egypt, even if it looked like at that time they were in bondage. Uh, you know, And, and that, that, that sense of like being masters of everything continued with them even to this time, uh, to the point where it became an axiomatic truth. Everybody believed it. That even if Rome is here now, uh, you know, d- taking taxes from us, even if they put Pontius Pilate in a palace in Jerusalem, nevertheless, we are free because God has promised us dominion and rule over the whole world as Abraham's seed. Hmm. Now, I, I think that Luther is probably the closest to the truth right here. This is, in fact, the freedom that they assume from the, for, the, for themselves, but it's a false freedom. You know, hmm. they do not see their enslavement, uh, which is the same enslavement of the Gentiles, which is to sin. Hmm. So, I mean, if, if we take their question in the sense that you're suggesting, which I, I think is helpful, then it's almost like they're they're inviting Jesus to to examine the scriptures with them again. Right. Like, I mean, back again to go to the bread of life discourse, where they they bring up the fact that hey, our fathers ate manna in the wilderness, and they they even quote there, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus has to correct them. Here, again, if to go with the way Luther put it, if they're thinking about the promises of the Old Testament, then they're almost questioning Jesus on, well, wait a second, here's what the scriptures say about us as God's people, yes. as the offspring of Abraham, where, where you come off with your interpretation, exactly. Jesus. Yeah, and Luther says this is a powerful argument because it's a scriptural argument. But Luther points out that they forget the uh, conditional nature of that promise, especially with regard to their their rulership uh, of, of uh, the, the land that God had given them, their possession of the land and the earthly and temporal power that God had promised them. It was always conditioned upon their, what? Their obedience to the law. 
And anybody who pays any attention to the history of God's people in the Old Testament will have to come to the conclusion that even though God was oftentimes faithful to them and delivered them, they were again and again and again unfaithful, uh, giving themselves over to the idols of the Gentiles, right? Falling into the sins of the Gentiles to the point where God finally took away the kingdom from them. He took away the land. He put them into captivity uh, to show through their physical and outward captivity the true spiritual captivity that they suffered from, right? The same captivity that Jesus is here speaking about, the captivity to sin, the captivity to transgressing God's commandments, right? And being caught up in uh, their doom of death and hell because of it. Hmm. So talk more about the way Jesus speaks about slavery then in response to their objection. He starts with, truly, truly, I say to you, amen, amen. We've noted those words from Jesus before. He, he draws attention to his answer. What does he say about slavery to sin here? Yeah, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. So here he says, you're thinking about a temporal authority and a temporal rule and a temporal freedom that you will have someday because God promised it to Abraham and to his seed. And he said that you're missing the point. Uh, you need to be set free, not from the Romans or your other Gentile oppressors. Uh, you need to be set free from the true enemy, uh, which is the, well, sin, the one who tempts you to sin, who is the devil, and uh, the ultimate destination of sin, which is death. And he, and he points out that sin isn't just this nebulous reality that's out there. Uh, sometimes Lutheran pastors or other pastors are tempted to talk about sin in very, very vague terms. You know, it's just sort of part of the existence that we're kind of caught up in. It, you know, it just happens to be raining outside or something like that. <laughs> no, sin is a very personal matter. It's a corruption of our person from the moment we're conceived. It is something that we practice as long as we are apart from God because of unbelief. You know, every breath we take is kind of a is a practice of, of idolatry and sin and offensive to the utmost to God. The world cannot believe this, by the way. Uh, this extreme teaching concerning sin and the pervasive nature of sin and, and the personal nature of sin. Uh, people want to look at the world and at themselves and other, other people and say they are, in some sense, righteous or righteous enough. They're not blameworthy. The scriptures teach something completely different that we are so stained by sin that we cannot help but practice sin. And with every action we take, we put ourselves deeper and deeper and deeper into the pit of death and under the cloud of God's wrath. You know, mm. uh, And this is what I think the Jews are going to find most unbearable. Not only the assertion that they're, that they're slaves, but slaves to sin. Uh, mm. Again, Alfred Edersheim. I know he's this old Anglican guy that nobody reads anymore. I get it. I get it. But, but he makes this really wonderful point when he says that if you study the, the Talmud and, and the various writings of the rabbis that were representative of the, the world of Jewish thought at or, or close to the time of Christ, uh, one of the things that you come to a realization of is even though they know Torah and they practice Torah, they do Torah, they don't have a strong sense of sinning against Torah. Uh, that is that because of their uh, uh, their descent from Abraham, and the fact that they were brought up hearing the Torah and 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 trying to practice the Torah or the or the things that were uh, related to the Torah, like the traditions of the elders, they were fine, all right with God. Sin was not their problem. 
and, and so he says that what Jesus is saying here is that complete variance with the words of the rabbis at or near that time. And it would have been shocking to them, just jarring for them to hear that here they had assumed themselves a chosen people, a, 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 a blessed people, a favored people, when in fact uh, Jesus is saying to them, no, uh, you are in the darkness of death because of your bondage to sin. You know, it doesn't matter if Abraham is your your blood uh, ancestor. You still do sin, and as often as you do sin and break the commandments, then you are uh, under the, the the same bondage of the Gentiles. And consequently, as we know, they need the same uh, salvation that the Gentiles receive. Hmm. So Jesus talks about that salvation in verses thirty five and thirty six, and he he uses that imagery of and the reality of slavery there to talk about the difference between a slave and a son, and then the son, the one who sets you free so that you will be free indeed. To help us into the way Jesus sticks with that language of sonship, of slavery, and, and how that does bring salvation even to those who would be enslaved by sin. Yeah, this is fantastic. Jesus is a master rhetorician, you know, uh, uh, and, and uh, he teaches us how to speak of these things, how to think of these things, and how to, and to, how to speak winsomely of these things. Uh, being a slave to sin means that you do not have a presence in, in or you don't have an abiding presence or uh, an inheritance in the Father's house. Uh, uh, you know, certainly he's speaking of God the Father's house, the kingdom of heaven, uh, but even of the house of Abraham. You see, this is wonderful. Jesus is reorienting for them their whole conception of what it means to be a child of Abraham. They all assume themselves to be children of the same house. Even though here Jesus is saying, no, you have a place in that house, but it's an accidental place. It's, an, it's not a permanent place. If you put your faith in your blood lineage or in your works of Torah to be sufficient in God's sight, then you are a slave. You, are, you will not abide in the house. You will be cast out. You will not have the inheritance. You know, And this, this wonderful, masterful rhetoric that Jesus employs switches the whole conception of sonship for them, right? And he, and, and he shows that uh, uh, you are to, you're, you're like unto the, the Gentiles that would have to come and to serve David or Solomon and, and the kings of Israel for a while. Uh, they were there and, 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 and served the people of God, but they didn't actually think of themselves as, as inheritors of that land and of that kingdom. And Jesus says that now you think of yourselves as the children, but in fact, you you are the true spiritual Gentiles. Now, this is necessary, as we talked about at the beginning of the program. Uh, you, cannot, you cannot lead with the gospel, so to speak. Uh, otherwise, you will be giving uh, words of comfort, salvation, and peace to someone who, in their security, will not know the value of the things that they are receiving, right? Uh, and so Jesus has to teach them about their true slavery before he gives them true sonship. And the true sonship that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob themselves enjoyed. And the true sonship that Moses preached and the rest of the prophets. Uh, this is the same sermon that was preached again and again and again by the prophets to the Israelites when they called the prophets heretics. And, and uh, it, when they uh, threw like uh, Jeremiah into prison or sawed Isaiah in half. I mean, this is the same attitude that drove them to, to kill and to persecute the prophets. Uh, it was this idea that we have a special favored uh, place before God, 
And nothing that you prophets say can, can convince me otherwise, right? When the prophets say, no, your hearts are very far from God because you neither believe in him nor you do those things that he finds pleasing, right? And so by, through their preaching, they were trying to do the same thing that Jesus is doing, opening their eyes to the reality of sin so that they would know uh, the, the purpose of the Messiah, you know, so they would receive him rightly when he comes, not as a bread king, as we heard about in John chapter six, but as a redeemer king, someone who is to, to ransom them back from, from the powers of sin, death, and the devil. As the text that we have for today closes, Jesus in verse 37 says, I, I know that you're offspring of Abraham. I, I assume he's talking there in, in the fleshly sense, like he's, he's acknowledging there, yes, I know you can trace your lineage back to Abraham, but then he, he says, but you're trying to kill me, so things aren't adding up here. Help us to, and I know this is a part of a larger, a larger conversation. We're going to get more of the text again tomorrow, but, but help us to see how at least this section closes out with, it sounds like more of that opposition is about to come. Absolutely. So uh, Luther also mentions here, and, and he sees it quite well, that Jesus is conceding the argument they wanted to make earlier. Hey, look, God made very specific promises to Abraham and to his children. Aren't we children of Abraham? Ought we to consider ourselves masters and rulers of the whole world? And Jesus says, yeah, you're the seed of Abraham. Grant that to you. I know that. And yet you seek to kill me. My word. And then he says, because my word finds no place in you. Anybody who studied uh, uh, you know, uh, Romans or, or the rhetoric of St. Paul will understand that, that what it means to be a child of God to be adopted by God's grace into his heavenly family, right? Uh, the thing that made Abraham truly a, a godly man and a Christian was his faith. Uh, and, and, so, and so God never intended for you know, the people of favor to be a people of blood lineage. Heaven forbid, right? Uh, uh, that would make us all sort of, uh, what, religious racists? <laughs> I know I promised not to use that term, but I just did. Well, it's true. And you could see how that, that temptation is very powerful and strong, especially in today's day and age, where everything is being recast in racial terms. There are peoples of favor according to their, their skin type, right? According to their lineage. And there are peoples of disfavor. This is ungodly, an extremely ungodly attitude. The people of favor, the people of blessing, or the people who receive God's word by faith. Just as Abraham heard the word of the Lord in Genesis chapter 15, and when he heard the word and believed the promises, uh, righteousness was credited to him according to not, not who he is according to his blood, but who he is according to his faith. So also what it means for God's people to truly be his people is not to be blood descendants of Abraham as much as it is to be a, a faith descendant of Abraham, to hear the same promises that he heard. Uh, uh, and 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 to he and to place to have your your trust placed upon the Savior who is to come, you know, uh, and and the fact that the the Jews at this time envisioned themselves as masters of the world apart from the the saving grace of God that would come in Christ, uh, that is the, the 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 delusion and the lie of the devil that had to be broken, right? Uh, which brings us into the next words, I suppose, where Jesus yeah. says. I speak of what I have seen with my father, God the Father, obviously, and you do what you have heard from your father. Now he's making a distinction of fathers, and he's making a distinction of households. This is so important to see how even though they consider themselves children of Abraham, 
Jesus is now saying, you are not true children of Abraham. You are not children of the Father, whom I know, the heavenly Father. Instead, you belong to an entirely different household, and I've come to set you free, even though in bringing you to a a real apprehension of your bondage and of your slavery to this false demonic father, you're going to, you are now and will continue to seek to kill me. Mm. Yeah, and, and again, that sets the stage for what we're going to read in the rest of John chapter 8, that where this who is their father, that's going to come up even more as the conversation continues. Pastor Flaming, we have about five minutes left on the morning, and we were talking before we started this morning that you know this is a text that I think is fairly well known in our congregations as one that we hear on Reformation Sunday at the end of October. As we wrap up, why is this such a a wonderful text as we think about the Reformation? I I know this is a a favorite topic of yours. It seems most times we study, somehow you relate relate the text to the Reformation. Here you have the the softball that's being tossed to you for you to knock out of the park. How is this such a great text for the Reformation and and for us as Christians? Uh, This is fantastic. I'm so glad I have this softball today uh, (laughs) because Luther makes this point that uh, what separates the true Christians from the, the temporary Christians or the false Christians is that they abide in the word. And by abiding in the word, that doesn't mean you abide half in the word and half in the world. You abide completely in the word. And when times of persecution, distress, and suffering come, instead of abandoning the word to find false comfort in the world, you cling more and more fervently to the word. Well, in the sermons that Jesus, uh, that, uh, uh, you know, and the sermons on what Jesus is saying here about uh, abiding in his word and being set free that Luther preached, uh, he said, this was most splendidly demonstrated to us at our past, uh, uh, yeah, at our past diet at Augsburg. He's talking about it back in, uh, uh, he was talking about, you know, the Augsburg Confession and uh, the place where the Lutheran princes between the emperor uh, Charles V stood and, and confessed the Lutheran teaching. And Luther said that leading up to the Diet of Augsburg, everybody was wringing their hands and saying, for the sake of this gospel, we're tearing apart the world. For the sake of this gospel, uh, we're about to bring down uh, worldly wrath against us. The emperor is going to send his armies. We're all going to be murdered there at the Diet. Uh, they're going to grab you too, Luther, and put you to death. How could, be go- how could God be leading us into such a violent and dark place? Uh, that was the mood of the Lutherans and the Lutheran lands leading up to the Diet of Augsburg. Nevertheless, Luther, he said that Christ proved himself faithful. He proved himself faithful because in, when the people uh, threw themselves on the mercy of God, even if they couldn't see a worldly way of escape, when they threw themselves upon the mercy of God, and especially on the promise of Christ that whoever abides in him will truly be his disciple and they will know the truth and the truth will set them free, then God provided a way of escape even when they couldn't see it. When they were willing to endure the cross and persecution, all manner of trial for the sake of the gospel of the Son, then God was faithful to his church. He didn't abandon his church. He didn't let them be destroyed. He didn't let them be slaughtered to every man, woman, and child. Instead, he fought valiantly so that the gospel would continue not only for them to give them great and saving comfort, it also, he also continued to prosper the gospel beyond those decades, right? It's always amazing to me. And when you look at the, the history of the Lutheran church, beginning in the 1520s and then all the way through to, let's say, the, uh, the, the uh, you know, 1580 and the, uh, and, the, and, and, and the Book of Concord, how often the pure teaching of the gospel was at the edge of like just complete obliteration and extinction. 
the, the, the Lutherans were dinosaurs before they even got going. Everybody always assumed that they were always on their way out. You know, they were either going to be consumed by the fanatics, the radical reforms, or they were going to be destroyed by, uh, you know, the armies that were allied with the Pope and, and that the Lutheran lands would be, be smashed and be through these various interims, you know, uh, the Leipzig interim the, uh, and the uh, Augsburg interim that, that uh, any sort of pure confession of the gospel would be wiped away with these concessions. Uh, nevertheless, God proved himself faithful. And for those people who threw themselves on uh, the word, who, those people who threw themselves on the gospel and refused to budge an inch off of the word, uh, you know, the God prospered the gospel among them and for all future generations. And uh, we still have that heritage today. We still have that freedom of being free people uh, today, knowing that we have reconciliation with God. We have the forgiveness of sins. We have the blood of Christ. We have the word of God. And we don't need to concede one little bit of it. If we abide in the word, God sees us. He recognizes us as his children, and he will indeed faithfully bring us to our heavenly home. Hmm. Pastor Brian Flammy is pastor at Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Roswell, New Mexico, helping us today to study John chapter 8, verses 30 to 38. Pastor Flammy, thanks for being our guest today. Oh yeah, my pleasure. Jesus says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Jesus sets us free. He is the son of God and he sets us free from slavery to sin that we might dwell in his household forever. God be praised. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. If you have any questions about the gospel according to St. John, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. It's always a pleasure to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.